Welcome to the Experience Ed podcast. I am Jim Steller. I am Mary Churchill. And I'm Adrian Dooley. We bring you this podcast on experiential education with educators and thought leaders from around the country and the world. Dr. Alex Johnson has served as provost at the MGH Institute since 2008 and prior to that served as a department chair and founding director of a large clinical program in a major Detroit teaching hospital. At the MGH Institute, Alex oversees graduate programs in many different health professions, as well as PhD and research programs and clinical experiences for 1,600 graduate students. Johnson's academic interests have focused on medical, speech-language pathology, and neurologic communication disorders, and stuttering. He has been involved in the development of widely used outcome measures in voice and swallowing disorders. Recently, his interest has turned to interprofessional issues and leadership across health and professions. In 2006, Johnson served as the president of the American Speech-Language Hearing Association. A focus of current projects and teaching centers on interprofessional collaboration as a mitigating factor in reducing errors in healthcare. He has received awards from several professional associations and is a distinguished scholar in the National Academies of Practice. Dr. Johnson, it is a pleasure to have you on with us today, especially since I'm a practicing speech and language pathologist uh, trained at Northeastern, and you have a doctorate in speech pathology from Case Western Reserve and teach at MGH Institute of Health Professions in Boston. Can you tell us what originally attracted you to this field? Uh, was it the patients and how you're affected by our field's real strong experiential hands-on component or something else? Uh, well, I'm gonna be very honest. It was not the uh, hands-on component. <laughs> and I'm, this is gonna reveal something about my age and I won't make it a long story, but just a very quick story. In 1970, I was a freshman at Kent State University in Ohio. And uh, that may not ring a bell with you, but Kent State in 1970 was the place where the uh, National Guard came on campus and shot students and there were all kinds of demonstrations and so forth. Of course. And at the time I was a freshman and I was majoring in journalism and uh, uh, school closed because of the shootings and they sent us home. And when we came back the next fall, we all had a uh, faculty advisor who took us under their wing to kind of talk to us about how we were coping with the shootings. And um, uh, you can think of this was kind of the early version of grief counseling and so forth that we see no mu so much now as school shootings have um, increased. Yeah. Anyway, uh, my advisor happened to be a, for this, experience happened to be this wonderful guy by the name of um, Dr. Bill, Dr. Bill somebody. Dr. All right, Bill. I'll, I'll come back to it in a minute and think of him. Uh, and he was phenomenal. And he happened to be the chair of the speech and hearing department at Kent State. And he was saying, you know, you don't seem very committed to this major. Uh, what could you do? Uh, could you come down to the clinic sometime and meet with me and I'll show you around. And he did. And I changed my major and never left. So that was the story that uh, um, came out of that. That's how I got into it. I literally stumbled into it because some somebody was nice to me at that particular moment in time. I mean, I think that's a great story. And I think so many college kids are waiting for a moment like that 
to happen to them as well and that pushes them in one direction or another yeah it was um a very interesting time in i mean the whole reason i ended up in speech and language pathology was i i knew i was a good communicator i loved communication and i was a communication major and then my parents were like well is that is that really specific enough? And then I found speech and language pathology and put all those things that I thought I was good at into one career path. And that was only after doing a couple co-ops in other media communications, PR sort of jobs and realizing those jobs were not for me. And it was all thanks to that experience before I even graduated college that helped me kind of redirect my path a little bit. Um, that professor uh, was Dr. Bill Widener. And okay. um, I kept up with him off and on over my whole career. And uh, he was just a wonderful person, a wonderful mentor, and uh, really inspired me as over the course of my um, uh, undergraduate and master's programs there. And those mentors, as we know through sort of the experiential education aspect is, are so important. They can change students' lives. Um, so after your period of practice, you went into an academic departmental leadership position in Detroit. Can you tell us what attracted you there and how did you handle the experiential programs on the programmatic training side of things? Yeah, so after I finished my PhD at Case Western, uh, I worked in the Hearing and Speech Center at uh, Case Western Reserve University for a couple of years. And then this wonderful opportunity presented itself at Henry Ford Hospital in Detroit. Where else would Henry Ford Hospital be? But in <laughs> of Detroit. course. Um, a wonderful, big urban hospital. And it just turned out that the uh, they were just ready to start a a new speech language pathology program in the Department of Neurology. And uh, it, was, it was a remarkable experience to be able to go into an academic medical center and uh, launch this new program and hire a lot of great people. And one of the things that we did from the very start was to say, um, this is such an interesting place with so much going on. We need to make sure that we have a strong educational component as part of this. And so uh, we partnered with the local university, Wayne State University, uh, which was right down the street and uh, developed a um, observation experience and a um, very early hands-on experience for graduate students in that program. Uh, but then we decided we wanted to go a little bit more in depth. And we then added on a two-year clinical fellowship, which was a uh, very interesting thing at the time, because the field only requires a year-long fellowship, um, post-masters, but we decided that for medical speech pathology, it was pretty complicated, and so many people wanted to do it, uh, and so we really designed this very interesting hands-on experience for, uh, uh, for four individuals a year to come after they had finished their master's degree and spend two years with us, really developing uh, competencies across the major areas of adult medical speech pathology. It was a great experience. That program still goes on today. 
That sounds like an incredible program and one that I, I think is so necessary to our field. Um, had you worked in different types of settings previously that you felt contributed to your decisions and moving forward and making an impact? Um, yeah, yeah. I th um, uh, right out of undergraduate school, and this again will date me, will <laughs> tell you a little bit about my age. Uh, right out of undergraduate school, I had a job in a public school okay. as a speech and language pathologist. Um, and working with elementary school children with all kinds of speech and language problems. And at the time, um, while it was obvious to most people in our field, it was not obvious to people in education or to society at large that uh, communication difficulties are a major, have a major impact on uh, academic performance. And so it was really fun to work in that area and develop uh, an interest in, uh, very strong interest in language, particularly the area of language, uh, words, symbols, syntax, comprehension, uh, the way people use language socially, et cetera. Um, and so that's what I took with me to my uh, master's program and my PhD program was really that interest. Uh, and that morphed into uh, a very strong interest in adult language disorders. And for listeners who don't know all the um, lexicon of speech language pathology, uh, these are people who've had strokes or a traumatic brain injury that's affected their ability to communicate. And so I had a lot of that experience over the course of my education and then in some clinical work before I went into this other new role at Henry Ford Hospital. All right. And that brings us to now as provost, which is the chief academic officer at MGHIHP. <laughs> it's a mouthful. It's a mouthful. You, you oversee the entire school academic programs, right? So right. first, can you tell us something about the school and mention a few of the programs you run? Sure. Well, uh, just as a matter of explanation, the uh, MGH Institute of Health Professions is a very unique school. Uh, it's just over 40 years old and was started by the Massachusetts General Hospital uh, uh, as with a desire to develop an interprofessional um, uh, focused school, graduate school of health professions. And it started out with um, a program in nursing and in physical therapy added speech pathology and then many others along the way. Um, uh, but it's a very interesting environment compared to most uh, uh, graduate programs in our field of speech language pathology are housed in big universities. And this is a very small, about 1600 student uh, graduate school. So it's only post bachelor students, students all have at least a bachelor's degree uh, and it is all focused on the various health professions. And some of those include nursing, which of course is a big one. Um, and again, uh, graduate, uh, this was one of the first schools to prepare nurse practitioners in the country. So those are wow. nurses who have a master's degree uh, to deliver primary care and other health services. Uh, physician assistant studies, speech language pathology, physical therapy, occupational therapy, genetic counseling, um, we have a PhD program in rehabilitation sciences. Uh, 
um, I'm sure I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, we have a, a very interesting master's and PhD program in health professions education. So it really is a um, portfolio of programs mm. that span healthcare, and there will be more to Absolutely. come very soon. Yeah. And so how is ex the experiential learning aspect of it different across different prof professions in the healthcare arena? Have you noticed um, some trends or big differences? Well, for, for one thing, it is to say um, uh, that this whole broad area of experiential learning, which is, in my experience, in many uh, universities, a nice option that's added on to undergraduate experiences in learning about a field or a discipline or work or, or um, uh, some other uh, focus that students are, are needing real world experience. And you look at programs like you went to at Northeastern, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, designed around an experiential learning model, but that's pretty unusual. Uh, contrast that with the health professions across whether it's medicine, nursing, all of the health professions uh, have to have a hands-on practical component. And so while everyone, uh, probably because of media, TV, et cetera, knows that uh, sort of what the, the model is for educating physicians of internships and residencies and fellowships, et cetera, uh, the variations in uh, practice-based learning that occur for health professionals that are not physicians is probably less better understood. And part of the confusion comes because they all look very different. And so, for example, uh, some programs require extensive periods of observation before they have any hands-on experience. Mm -hmm. Others require more hands-on experience. Uh, uh, some require face-to-face uh, -face, um, and measure contact this is true in speech language pathology. Absolutely. Where um, uh, minutes and hours of patient contact are the coin of the realm, where in other fields like physical therapy, it may be how many weeks or uh, how many 40 hour weeks did you spend I with understand. this experience? And so the variations are all of those, but in reality, they all whittle down to uh, some. Uh, heavy didactic learning experience to prepare students, and then an equally heavy dose of exposure to patients in different settings with different health conditions, uh, et cetera, that allow individuals in that profession to get the experience they need to enter practice. Absolutely. Our profession requires that to be a licensed practitioner, one must be trained in the clinic as well as the classroom. Um, it's really important, uh, and I'm sure you've seen that as a leader in the field in pushing those programs forward. We see a shift occurring in America toward more value placed on the skills one has uh, personally as well as academic knowledge. Yeah. How does this impact MGH IHP? What are the different types of learning experiences for different types of learners? So there are, um, it's very interesting. And, you know, we're, we're recording this during this time of COVID, this pandemic, which has driven 
significant innovation in clinical education. Um, as I mentioned, we have 1,600 students. Probably on any given day, we have seven or 800 who are in some field experience somewhere. And again, they vary by time and, and uh, what those experiences look like. So if you can imagine on March 9th, uh, the world shut down and many health centers and hospitals and public schools and other places, community centers, other places where all of our students across our professions went said, we really ha can't take students right now. Either we're shutting down ourselves mm -hmm. or we need to um, uh, protect the students and protect the patients and not have any extra people coming in and out of this setting because right. of um, exposure to COVID. Yeah. And so very quickly we pivoted to uh, expanding our experiences in telehealth, meaning communication with patients via um, just the way that we are now uh, over a computer. Um, and of course, anyone in the US knows that much of the medical care right now being delivered, the non-urgent care especially is being delivered through telepractice or telehealth. It's very, very common. And so uh, in all of our fields, we have students who have taken that on. We've also expanded our greatly the experience that our students, hands-on experience that our students have with uh, what are called standardized patients or actors. And so you can imagine that a person who's learning to become a psychiatric nurse practitioner um, could also get experience could get experience in a psychiatric mental health setting, but if you wanted them to learn a lot about depression, you can train actors to come in and interact with uh, those students and to actually design the scenario, the experience that occurs. So the students actually learning very specific competencies that need to be developed. So how do you deal with a patient who is angry? Or how do you deal with a patient who interrupts all the time? Or how, you know, all of those very specific skills that are very important to that particular discipline. Wow, I have to say that's a unique solution that I wouldn't have considered an option, but could be so beneficial because you can really have a lot of control about what the students are experiencing and focusing on the time instead of trying to, you know, get out there and get this experience and you have patients that are behaving sort of in a, a one way and you were hoping to get experience in another way and bringing in those actors really give you a lot of control in the learning process. Yeah, that's very that's, interesting. Yeah. So um, these actors, these standardized patients have been used extensively in medicine, in nursing, uh, more recently in physical therapy, but now we're extending it to literally all of our disciplines. And um, so uh, just to toss it back to speech pathology for a second, because that's what we're interested in yes. today, uh, that uh, very difficult to have someone come in and, and imitate a speech disorder in a right. realistic way. However, um, if you think about it, uh, what does the speech pathologist do? Well, they're working with children. They have to interview parents. They have to spend a lot of time getting the history. They have to talk to referral sources. So training the actors to do some of those um, uh, roles to be delivering uh, uh, the experience in those roles uh, really does do exactly what you're saying is to say, okay, here's a mother who 
has a child with a severe communication disorder, but she doesn't speak English and she has to use an interpreter um, uh, with her. And so that's a very challenging situation for a student. Yes. And what a great thing to learn, right? Because they're all gonna have to be able to do that. So those are some of the scenarios that are, and now there are uh, dozens, probably hundreds of them uh, that our students are using and it's a great experience. That does sound like an incredible yeah. experience. I, I almost wish I could be a part of that just because I think it's so unique and a great way to get a lot out of your education. I mean, that's what you're there for. So if you want to be a, the best at what you do, opportunities like that are so helpful. Yes. Yeah. You know, and so where do you think the future is going for your program in this post pandemic world that we're predicting? Yeah, well, we can't wait, right, till we're in the post-pandemic world. True, very. Um, uh, because this is a very hard time in higher education, a very hard time in health professions education. So we do can't we can't wait till we get beyond it. But I think we've learned so much about um, education by having it disrupted through this horrible hurricane that we're living through. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's forced a level of innovation. And I'm sure this is not just in our program. I'm sure it's in many programs where a lot of these new modalities for teaching are going to be uh, developed in such a way that they actually become part of the curriculum. So they're yeah. not just a Band-Aid for today, but even after COVID, we will you, still be using it. Yeah, you see them becoming a permanent solution. Yes. Yeah, what, one, just one quick example of something we're experimenting with right now. Sure. Uh, we're working with an organization uh, called the Center for Medical Simulation, which is um, just a remarkable set of resources who do research and training in the area of simulation. And we're working with them to take a set of experiences that we've identified for nurse practitioner students and physician assistant students and uh, for each type of experience to build competencies into it so that the students will do these experiences before they actually go to a real clinical placement. And the idea is by the time they go to the um, uh, real clinical, let's just take uh, psychiatry, okay, mental health for a second. So they will have had practice with actors and other, uh, using other technologies, um, for interacting with people with different types of mental health conditions and uh, experiencing some of the challenges and problems that come up in those situations before they ever have to go into the hospital or the clinic to, to deal with that. And of course, this has great, um, great learning benefit to the student, but on the other side, it also makes that student a very attractive candidate for practicum because uh, people who work in these clinics and hospitals are so busy yep. that taking a student that's going to require a lot of explanation and early development is a big challenge. And so if we can cut some of that um, time and effort for the person who's accepting the student, it's a great thing. I couldn't agree more. I know that if we're sending our students that still are in their programs out and they're competitive candidates for the best positions, you know, hospitals and schools, and they really want to see that. And uh, now being on the other side of it, even though, well, grad school is getting further and further in the past. Mm -hmm. I feel like it was yesterday. Um, 
but I haven't had the opportunity to have my own grad student, but my friends in the field that have, I mean, there's competition. They want the best students that are going to step up and sometimes even bring something new to the table, not just there to learn, but Hey, I learned this in class and you want to market your students to the best positions because those could be, you know, their future jobs someday. Exactly. So it works both way. Yes. We want great people with great clinical experience and some teaching skills to take our students and we want to support them in that. And on the other hand, you're right. We also want the student to deliver some value to this experience, uh, which we hear about all the time. Right. And of course in the health fields, and I don't know if this is true in all the other fields that you all are interested in, in experiential learning, but in the health fields, um, I would guess that, uh, 40% of all of our students uh, end up with a job that they wanted out of that some aspect of their clinical experience. Of one of those placements, the light bulb came on and they said, wow, I really like working with people in the hospital or I really like little children or outpatient uh, clinics with young families, et cetera. And uh, because that's where they shine, the person says, hey, we're looking for someone. You should apply for this job after you graduate. And so it's not unusual at all to hear those stories over and over. Exactly. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for spending this time with us today. Um, Before I let you go, is there anything else that you'd like to add? I just think that um, it's a wonderful opportunity to sort of reframe, to bring these two concepts of experiential learning as it's been discussed in higher ed as a um, focused uh, experience uh, tied to a career to a different kind of experiential learning, which is very focused, um, competency, goal-directed, real-world experience. There's probably much room for more of this conversation and learning from each other. So for me, this is a great conversation and I appreciate all that you are doing. Uh, Well, thank you so much. Absolutely. You know, it was wonderful. You brought some points to my attention that I feel like um, I I should have put that all together, but you have such an eloquent way of putting it in and making some great examples that really have me thinking about different aspects of experiential learning that I hadn't considered before. So I appreciate you sharing that with us and taking the time um, this was such an incredible conversation to have because it's my field and this is where I'm passionate. And it was, it was, I appreciate you sharing um, your insight into Come this and area with us. The MGHIHP. You know, now I'm really intrigued with a I'm really intrigued. I've heard amazing things about the program, of course. And um, uh, you are very lucky to be a part of it. I'm so fortunate. Uh, well, th- and thank you so much. Thank you so much. Have a great evening, Dr. Johnson. And hopefully you'll come back and visit us on the podcast sometime soon. I hope so. Thanks. Thank you for listening. We hope you will come back soon for the next installation of Experience Ed. As we continue to talk about the neuroscience and sociology of enhancing higher education. By combining direct experience with classical academic learning.